Well, let's turn again to the book of, of Hebrews, and this morning I'll be reading uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, and verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men, in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And let us pray. Lord, again, we draw near to Thee and thank You for the time this day. Thank You for uh, Your precious Word. Thank You for songs. And I thank You for Your blessed Holy Spirit and pray that You would help me uh, during these moments together to um, bring forth Your blessed Word in a way that's pleasing to Thee and in a way that's honoring to Thee and in a way that is, is true to its holy intention. And again, I would pray that You would give us... Um, insight you would enlighten um, our minds to apprehend your holy revelation and it would be for the good of our souls it would be for your honor but it would be for our own increased delight in your being it would be of assistance to our love for thee and our walk with thee so we uh, commit this time to you and we ask these things in jesus name amen well, verses uh, 15 and 16 of the previous uh, chapter uh, make up one of the more encouraging statements, I think, in all of Scripture in regard to our Lord's high priestly ministry. It was just read in our hearing earlier this morning. We are assured, that, as every Christian is assured of this reality, um, that we have a high priest that can truly sympathize with our weaknesses, that, that enters into our feelings and our struggles in the midst of life in this fallen world. And not only that, he is able to to provide relief to our souls in the midst of those kinds of struggles. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he's especially able to, to come to our aid and our help when we are being tempted to sin. And in a light of that, we are encouraged to pray. We're encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace. We always have the privilege and opportunity to, to do that. And then there is the assurance that we'll find seasonable help. We'll find help in, in time of need. Now, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5, the emphasis is especially on the ministry of the high priest in the Old Testament. And then verses 5 through 10, uh, the emphasis on our Lord as a high priest. So verses 1 through 4, there's a description uh, of the high priest, and there's a clarification of his function and uh, how his position was attained. And it's a, it's a valuable consideration, I think, uh, even though the focus is on the, the high priestly ministry of fallible human beings in the Old Testament. I think it's still valuable by means that there is some, some comparison and contrast with uh, the high priestly ministry of our Lord, and that will facilitate an appreciation for the multifaceted high priestly ministry that he has in our behalf. So 
Uh, this morning, I, I trust for the good of our souls and for the purpose of increasing and deepening our real communion with the person of Christ, we'll consider three facets of the high priestly ministry noted in verses 1 through 4. We'll kind of focus especially on verse 3, but the high priestly ministry, particularly, not exclusively, but as it relates to Old Testament priests. So in the first place, I would have you notice that the character of the high priestly ministry um, is a solidarity with the people he represents. There's a solidarity with the people that he represents. That is to say, there's a full identification with those that he speaks for. And I'm thinking here of the words he has taken from among men and appointed on behalf of men. And if we simply look at the the phrases consecutively, three remarks here. First of all, the qualification of being taken from among men This applies to every high priest. Notice the text uses this term, every. Therefore, everyone who was a high priest was taken from among men. Now, I know that that might seem a bit like stating the obvious or the unnecessary, like what are the other options. But I think the author, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's underscoring the point that the high priest had to be one who fully identifies and therefore can empathize with all of those to whom he represents. And William Lane said the concern is what is true of every high priest. By an effective use of uh, prepositional phrases, the writer is able to insist on the solidarity of the Levitical high priest with those he represents. He's selected from among men to represent them before God. And William Hughes wrote, an essential characteristic of high priesthood is that the holder of this office is chosen from among men. Uh, Only one who is himself man or human fitted to serve as a representative of his fellow men before God. It is in particular as man that a high priest is qualified to act in behalf of men. Now we can add, in the case of our Lord, this kind of solidarity with his people was necessary for an effectual sacrifice for them when he died on the cross back in Hebrews 2.17. It says, therefore he, referring to Christ, had to be made like his brethren in all things. And the reason is that he might become immersed and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for their sins. So this qualification of being taken from among men applied to every Old Testament high priest. It focuses on their origination, you might think of it in that way. A second remark would be that the high priests were not self-appointed. They didn't decide that this is what I'm going to do. They were taken from among men. They were appointed on behalf of men. William Lane said he is selected from among men to represent them before God. And and B.F. Westcott comments on the significance of this word appointed. He says, um, it's the ordinary word for authoritative appointment to an office. Uh, The same thought is is found in chapter 7 and verse 28, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Chapter 3, excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 8, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts, both gifts and sacrifices. Uh, John Owen indicates that there, uh, this word includes two different things. Number one, God's designation and appointment. And number two, actual consecration according to the order of law. God's designation and appointment on the one hand, and actual consecration according to the order of law. And reading from Exodus chapter 28, it says, Then bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Verse 2, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make, make Aaron's garments 
to consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. So this, this term involves designation, but also consecration and being set apart to God. Um, so they're taken from among men, appointed in behalf of men. So that draws our attention to the idea of origination. Put it, in, put it in another way, participation in this ministry, it's marked by divine initiative. And both of these phrases feed into this reality. Uh, taken, the verb taken, as well as the word appointed, they're both in the passive voice, which indicate there's a activity here from an outside agency. Um, in other words, they did not determine to become a high priest themselves. They were chosen by God for this privilege. Then a third remark under this first heading would be that it's, it's a ministry that's marked by great privilege. Being a high priest is a ministry, was a ministry that was marked by great privilege. And I'm thinking here of the words in things pertaining to God. He is appointed by God on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. And I'm just arguing here that this is a, an unparalleled honor because God himself is an incomparably glory, glorious being. In things pertaining to God, the God that it pertains to is an infinitely glorious being. We recall the, the, the words of Exodus 28, and we see the dignity com, com, uh, that, that this um, is in, involved with um, the Old Testament high priest. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Um, and we see here something of the dignity and privilege accorded to Aaron. And this, this is not because of any intrinsic excellency in his person, but, but it's the glory of association with God and carrying out the, the duties to him and for him. So there, there's always a, a glory in being connected with things pertaining to God because he's an infinitely glorious being. Um, so we have texts in the Bible like, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or Psalm 26, 8, Lord, I love the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwells, or the place where thy glory dwells. And these kind of sentiments... Um, would be nonsensical if there did not reside in the being of God a kind of excellency that, that is infinite and glorious and, um, and much more glorious than the passing temporal attractions of this world. Psalm 84.10 says, For a, a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. One commentator wrote, none but the priest could lawfully enter the innermost apartments of the tabernacle or temple. David says, any place in God's house is better than residence among the wicked. And Luther commented on the totality of this psalm. He, he said, let the world have their rich ones, their powerful ones, and their wise ones, and their consolations in this world. Let them trust and glory in their wisdom, their might, their wealth, and their possessions. My heart triumphs in the living God. So this ministry of the high priest is in things pertaining to God. That makes it an incomparable glorious privilege because of the character of the being of God. So the first facet of this high priestly ministry is to notice that its character is marked by a solidarity with the people that he represents. Um, identification with the people he represents, taken from among men and appointed on behalf of man. Secondly, we notice that the necessity of this ministry is because of human sin. Why did this ministry even have to exist? The answer is because of human sin. The need, the reason for this ministry was because of the reality of human iniquity. We could ask 
uh, about certain kinds of occupations, why they exist, and in some cases the answer is kind of negative. Uh, we need doctors because there are maladies and illnesses. Uh, we need police officers because of the reality of lawbreakers. Israel needed a high priest because of their sin, the ongoing reality of sin. That's the reason for the existence of a high priest. You recall the reason given in, in chapter 2 and verse 17 for our Lord's high priestly ministry was to make propitiation for the sins of the people. John Owen says it was the entrance of sin that made the office of the priesthood necessary. So here's a clear statement um, about what high priests do, what their function. If we try to want to be clear in our mind, what does a high priest do? The answer is to, to, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 3 says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. This is a concise definition, so to speak, of their job description, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Owen says, This is the proper and principal work of the priest. Uh, I want to offer uh, two related thoughts. And these two related thoughts may seem like they're getting off track a little bit, but it, it's going to go like this, not like this. So I, I just was, was thinking in terms here, because it's because of sin. So it's just two related thoughts that are kind of related to that. So number one, the language which describes the, the principal work of the high priest reminds us that the, the heart and center of the gospel is the issue of human sin. That's why we need the gospel also. It's because of the reality of human sin, which, which separates men from fellowship with God and, and therefore from communion with a most pure, holy, glorious God. Um, sin is a, a terrible and a pervasive evil. Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. God, your sins have hidden your face, his face from you, so that he does not hear you. So your sins act as a, a barrier between you and your God. And it's the reality of sin and, and the barrier it creates that that must be removed before true fellowship be, between man and holy God can take place. And that's exactly what our Lord's atoning death accomplished. Um, this is the point of the text that I just read, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make satisfaction for the sins of his people. So the sin of the people he came to save necessitated a suffering, atoning death that would truly satisfy the righteous judgment of God and truly have the effect of turning away his holy wrath. So it's, it's the sin of man that evokes the displeasure of God. The wrath of God is revealed, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. It's because of this reality that Christ came into the world. That's why he was born. He shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. This is how the Apostle Paul gave his testimony. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And, um, and, and it's because of remaining sin. Now, even though the glory of our Lord's high priestly ministry, it's the assurance that we are forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future, because of the success of his work on the cross, still the reality of remaining sin, in one sense, is the great burden of the Christian life, and why we still need the ongoing intercessory work of the high priest. And here it helps to, uh, to know a little bit how to confess sin. So um, we're kind of getting off track a little bit here. We're getting a little bit more off track, and then we'll get right back. But I don't know if you've thought too much before about 
we know that it's right to confess sin, but I don't know if you've thought too much about what is the right way to confess sin. So just two examples from the scriptures that I think are helpful. The first one uh, is the Apostle Peter, because as you know, he denied the Lord three times. And do you remember after he denied the Lord, he didn't say, well, I guess Jesus was right. He was wise. Um, he said, I deny him, and I did. But rather, what does he do? He goes out and he weeps bitterly, and we presume that that's when he confessed his sin, when that was his disposition, that was his mindset. Uh, when David came to his senses after he had committed um, the sin of adultery and murder, uh, he confessed his sin, and, and it's found in these words from Psalm chapter 51, and this helps you and I to know how it is we should confess sin. Now, you might be thinking, maybe not, but now you might be thinking, well, Psalm 51 is really good if you have some kind of scandalous sin. If you commit adultery or if somebody commits murder, that's the psalm to go to. But I'm arguing it helps all of us all the time to confess sin because every sin is against an infinitely pure, holy God. So this psalm helps you and I to know how to confess any sin, any place, any time, anywhere. It, it conveys the right disposition and the right spirit. David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in thy sight. So that thou art justified when thou speak, and blameless when thou, when thou dost judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou wilt make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, like the bones which thou hast broken. Rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my, my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. So because of the reality and the effect of remaining sin, we are relying upon our Lord's ongoing high priestly ministry in our behalf. First John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But the next verse says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, number two under this heading, um, a consideration of the ministry and activity of, of human high priests in the Old Testament does engender a great appreciation for the effectual work of Christ in our behalf. Now, even though there was a, a dignity and a glory connected with the ministry of the high priest in the Old Testament, uh, compared to the Lord of glory, it was marked by weakness and ineffectiveness. Uh, Hebrews 9.8 says the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Cannot accomplish that. Hebrews 10, 11, every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So the glory of the gospel of Christ and the glory of our Lord's high ministry 
um, of which the Old Testament priesthood was only typological and anticipatory, it's effectual to take away sin. It's effectual to cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living and the true God. So in the first place here, we see that the character of the ministry of the Old Testament high priest, it's solidarity with the people that he represents. Secondly, the necessity of the ministry of the high priest, it's because of the reality of human sin. Otherwise, the ministry would not be needed. Thirdly, based upon the fallen and fallible condition of the people to whom they ministered, the needed quality was compassion. The needed quality that the high priest had to have was compassion, not coldness, not aloofness, but, but sympathy and concern and compassion. Uh, verse 2 goes on to say, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. He can deal compassionately with others because of the reality of the weakness of his own being. He himself is a sinner. The next verse indicates he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins also. I would have you note three features of this, this compassion. First of all, it's, it's nature. Now, the text speaks of dealing gently. The King James says, have compassion. It's present tense, which indicates this is an ongoing feature of their ministry, but it's a fascinating term. It's the only occurrence in the Greek Bible of this particular word, and it means to moderate one's feelings, to moderate one's passions, or, or keep in measure the intensity or harshness of one's emotions. And one author noted the word group is particularly used in cases where um, the emotion involved anger. Kind of a long quote here. In order to fulfill his duties worthily, a high priest must not only carry out his various ritual responsibilities precisely and carefully, he also needs to be able to moderate his emotions and deal gently with those he represents before God because he too is beset with weakness. The verb draws attention to the curbing of emotions appears only here in the Greek Bible, although often rendered deal gently, be gently in one's be gently in one's attitude towards someone. The word entails finding that the mean between indifference and extreme feelings, especially anger and grief. If the Levitical high priests were angry with those who are ignorant and going astray, they could not minister effectively to them. Instead, they were to restrain their emotions in faithfulness and in faithfulness to their calling, offer sacrifices for their sins. But it is clear this context, it's regarded as a positive quality. An awareness of his own frailty and sin causes the high priest to moderate his justifiable displeasure and anger toward the sins of the people. So it especially has to do with the high priest sort of restraining or moderating his own emotions as he deals with the sins of the people, especially the idea of anger. And I think that's good to remember because, in a sense, we have ministry with one another also. And, and it's good to moderate that also. Also, I have a, two verses. I should have checked with Carolyn before on this. I think, I think she put them up in my study some years ago. But it's about four feet away from where I sit. Um, it's from James chapter 1, 19 and 20. Not that I really need these, but they're up there. Uh, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. I have to see those verses every single day. So I think they're important. Um, now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Um, but often anger is the product of uh, sin and selfishness. And it's easily exploited by the enemy of our souls. So Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry. And, and yet, do not 
sin. Do not let the, the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. We read it in Genesis chapter 4, prior to the first murder in history, the emotion of anger is ascribed to Cain. And Abel, on his part, also um, brought the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And uh, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And then we read about him committing the first murder. This is a needed, a needed quality for the high priest in dealing with people is compassion and gentleness. Um, and, and here the accent is especially on, on moderating his emotions, especially that of anger. Well, secondly, notice the object of his compassion. It's those who are described as ignorant and misguided. Ignorant and misguided. To be ignorant is to be lacking in knowledge or information. Uh, misguided is to go astray, to be misled or deluded. It's used in, in chapter 3 and verse 10 of those who's, who they go astray in their hearts. Um, and William Lane makes the point that this compassion um, is only extended to those who sin in ignorance and error. Uh, Hebrews 9, 7 says, but um, into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And in Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 2, it, it speaks of a person who sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord. And you see in Leviticus, there's a repetition of this kind of unintentional sinning. Leviticus 4.22, when a leader sins and unintentionally does any one of uh, all the things which the Lord God has commanded not to be done, he becomes guilty. If his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering, bring his offering a goat, a male without defect. However, sins that were committed intentionally uh, would entail exclusion from the congregation. They're in a different category. In Numbers 15.30, it says, But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, uh, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. And that, that fits in with the theme of apostasy that is found in the book of Hebrews. Well, then third in the third place here, notice the reason for his compassion. It might be better to say the motivation for his compassion, since he himself is beset with weakness. This word suggests he's being a sinner and is predisposed, excuse me, and, and predisposed to be compassionate to those who are struggling with the same kinds of sins. The text says that he himself is beset with weakness. And this is the idea of to be affected or to be enclosed, conceived of as being beset or surrounded by a state or condition. It can mean wear something or have something on. In extra biblical Greek, a sentence was wear a white goat skin. It's translated bound in Acts 20, 28. I am bound with this chain. It's translated hung in Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. So the, the term beset it suggests something burdensome that, that weighs a person down. If you hike up, up Mount Peak, you'll see people with backpacks, but occasionally you'll see somebody walking with a very heavy backpack. It, just, it seems burdensome, like it's weighing them down. And the text indicates that the high priest was beset with weakness. Now, the next verse helps us to understand what this weakness is. It brings out that he was obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins. That suggests very strongly that, that his weakness consists
consistent, consistent in his own remaining sin and proneness to sin. O'Brien wrote, there is good ground for the high priest to restrain his emotions, especially his anger, because like the people whom he represents, he too is subject to weakness. The verb was often used for the clothing one wore. The Old Testament spoke of the glorious vestments worn by Israel's high priest as a mark of his authority. Hebrews uh, affirms that what he wears is weakness. He too is human and therefore beset by frailty and sin. With those who erred through ignorance, the high priest might well sympathize, for he too was prone to the same weakness. And I would argue, to argue by, by way of conclusion here, that uh, we need the same kind of, of spirit with those who are misguided. Let me just read to you these words from Titus chapter 3. Um, it says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, and then to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And then it says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, that's the same word that's in our text, misguided. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So, so here the, the elders in their respective spheres of service, they're being reminded to encourage all believers, which certainly would have included them not to malign, uh, to be uncontentious, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. And on what basis are they supposed to do that? Well, number one, because this is what we all were in our unconverted state. We were all foolish. We were all disobedient. We were all deceived. We were all enslaved to various lusts. And secondly, what made the difference is not anything that we ourselves did for ourselves or to ourselves, but rather when the kindness of God, our Savior, Came, his love man, for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but in righteousness and according to his mercy. So realizing our, our own weakness, our own frailties, does help us to minister to one another in a way that is pleasing to God, in a way that is honoring to him, and in a way that is good for their souls. And let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning for these considerations, and we, we thank you for the kind of high priest that we have in the Lord of glory, and we, we praise you. Although he was tempted with sin, he never did sin, but we do thank you that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, and we thank you that we have such a, um, a glorious being that is always receptive to us as we draw near to him. And I pray that you would take what we have considered this morning and apply it to our own hearts, and I, I pray that... Um, just the, the time together would increase our own devotion to Christ, our own delight in Christ, our own uh, deep reverential commitment to him. And I, I pray cause this to be for your glory and, and for the good of our own souls. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.